this lockdown policies is one of the most inegalitarian policies we've ever implemented, but it's also keep an eye on how that inequality and unfairness will be carried through in the lifting of the, uh, of the lockdown policies. Around the world, as the COVID pandemic plays out, and some countries are starting to ease their restrictions, this narrative of the economy and public health being opposing weights on a set of scales keeps returning, that they need to be balanced somehow. But before this, universal health coverage, and by extension, the health of the population and public health, is very much seen as being supportive of the economy. So is a pandemic different, or perhaps is that dichotomy false? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and to talk about that, I'm again joined by three public health experts, the panel we spoke to a fortnight ago. So we have Martin McKee, Professor of European Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hi, Martin. Hello. Kathleen Bakinski, Assistant Professor of Public Health at Muhlenberg College. Kathleen, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. And Sridhar Venkatapuram, Associate Professor of Global Health and Philosophy at King's College London. Hello again, Sridhar. Hello. Um, Kathleen, let's talk to you for a start, because um, in the US at the moment, this thing between public health and the economy is almost becoming a culture war. Could you give us a, a synopsis of how it's playing out um, in your country at the moment? Uh, certainly. I think, as you say, it's it's becoming a very politicized issue here. Um, we've obviously, at this point, been several weeks into social distancing policies uh, across the United States to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the state. And we're already starting to see um, calls to uh, reopen the economy, calls to um, kind of, quote unquote, get back to work or get back to business. Um, and there is indeed starting to be um, something of a red versus blue state divide in that. And then even within states, um, there's tensions between, uh, for example, governors versus mayors, different level levels of governments as to which is the right way to go. And I think the most recent example um, I can give of this uh, as we're talking today is from the state of Georgia. Uh, Governor Kemp in Georgia uh, made the decision uh, as of today, uh, Friday, to begin reopening uh, to a certain limited extent certain businesses such as gyms, um, nail salons, uh, businesses of that nature. And his argument was essentially that um, it's it's sort of necessary to at least begin reopening the economy, that this can be done safely. And he's been met with significant uh, resistance, particularly from mayors, such as the mayor of Atlanta, um, uh, obviously a large city in Georgia, um, basically saying my recommendation to, to the residents of Atlanta is to continue social distancing that we're not ready to reopen yet. Um, and even with Within um, some businesses in Georgia, there's been some resistance as well. There's been uh, business owners who are sort of thinking, well, I'm not sure, you know, my clients are ready to return. I'm not sure that it's safe yet to reopen my restaurant. 
Um, so there's, I think, enormous tensions right now in this conversation about whether and to what extent reopening should happen. Um, and it has become profoundly politi politicized here. Mm. And Martin, in Europe, it, it, we're seeing some economies starting to, to open up again. We have seen much less, in fact, almost no uh, political uh, partisanship of the sort that we've just heard about from the United States. What we have seen is that those countries that are opening up now are the ones that closed down earliest. And as a consequence, they were the ones that managed to control the pandemic best. So, for example, Austria or the Czech Republic or Slovakia that really got in there quickly. And as a, as a result, they've been able to limit the impact of it. So they're now very tentatively opening up. We do have a framework for doing this. And there's a high degree of consensus, uh, a framework that was put out in a roadmap by the European Union. And this makes very clear that everything will be driven by the epidemiology, by the health. The economy is important, but it is secondary to sorting out the health situation and stopping the spread of the pandemic. Uh, so it says that we should be moving gradually. Uh, each time you move forward, you should evaluate it to make sure that the infections are not coming back again. And uh, there should be a high level of coordination among the member states because there's a particular issue. It's true, actually, the same in the United States, but uh, there is a particular issue in border areas where you may have a town that straddles a border. Uh, one classic example between Italy and Slovenia, Gorica, Nova Gorica, where the border between the two countries actually goes down the center of the main square. Thank you, Martin. And uh, Srida, You've um, been involved in conversations in, in India and other places around the world. Um, could you give us that sort of global view? Is there, How is that uh, public health versus the economy playing out elsewhere? Okay. So um, I think that, you know, we have had the benefit, uh, if that's the right word, is that as the infections have moved across the world, um, we should not uh, ignore the fact that they have moved from, uh, you know, not only regionally from Wuhan, China to regionally geographically, but also went to the major, major sort of cosmopolitan cities and major rich countries, and then moving into less developed countries. And India was in the second sort of wave. And we have now sort of the infections moving into sub-Saharan Africa and Latin American countries at a, a lower weight. So what's happened is that uh, the policies that have been implemented in a variety of different uh, lower and middle-income countries have been on the one hand to mimic um, the policies that have uh, been imp uh, applied in rich countries, but we're seeing a bit of resistance in certain countries, particularly in sub-Saharan African countries, where they are essentially saying, it, given the implications of what, uh, so countries like India have experienced or the implausibility of uh, shutdown or lockdown in countries which have high population density, that um, we need to have different approaches. Now, this, in terms of uh, LMICs, the question about the economy versus public health has not been so stark, um, because right now they're in the stages. So, for example, India is really struggling with the consequences of the 
both the social and economic destruction of uh, the in, in the lives of people who are in the informal sector. Uh, and it's become very clear that in these countries, the informal sector plays a significant role in the economy, and they've just been cast out. So um, the the conversation still is, where are we in terms of the spread of infections? How does it, uh, how can it be controlled given that? So in big countries such as India, Nigeria, uh, Indonesia, and uh, the central government, for example, in India does not control health per se. It's what we would call a state level issue. So the go state governments have control over health programs. Uh, and so the actual bureaucratic and government structures are determining how these infections and policy are implemented. So there's no yet a coherent public health versus economy conversation that's happening. But we already are seeing incredible, uh, you know, sort of expectations or uh, I don't know what you would call it, prognostications that development in many countries is going to be set back a decade or more. And, in, and sort of millions of people are going to suffer economically, but also we're going to see a huge number of deaths from starvation and other kinds of um, sort of sheer deprivation as a result of it. So there we go. There's, there are sort of very different questions in different countries. But I suppose this comes back to this idea that, you know, balancing the economy with public health um, is important. But we know, as I said at the beginning, that um, public health has been a key pillar of of supporting the economy um, in the sort of the world pre-COVID. Uh, it was an important way of of making sure that that the population was still productive and and was able to work and and live their lives fully. So, it's is a pandemic. Is what's happening in the pandemic um, different? How does that that change that balance? This is, I think, a fundamental uh, issue in how countries decide to um, phase out the lockdowns, but also how the amazing uh, amounts of money that's going into the economy in order to support the economy and support individuals. The idea that health is good for the economy is part of a long-standing debate that's been going on for decades about whether, particularly in development, whether uh, development causes health or whether health causes economic development. Um, and there have been numerous debates that have been going on. And one of the achievements apparently in global health has been this idea that uh, health is good for development and this will be convincing to policymakers and politicians that because we can show a causal relationship between uh, investments in health and then sort of growth in economic development, that they will invest more in health. That has actually not proven to be true across the board. Um, and what this compares to is an argument that health is important as a matter of equity and justice because health is important to people. So the second argument that health is valuable to people in and of themselves is not been convincing, but apparently if we make an argument that you know health is good for the economy, people will invest more in the economy. So now to the second part of your question, which is about um, you know, what does pandemics do? 
the what I found interesting today was that um, a YouGov poll in the UK shows that of all the different issues that they think is most pressing right now, the number one, over 75% of the people that responded said health is the number one issue. And second is the economy at a sort of 10 percentage points or, or around there less. So what this has shown is that one, uh, health has always been important in the UK, unlike other countries which misunderstand health as being about health care. So in the United States, health has never made it to the top of the agenda because it's sort of seen as a private consumption good. But in the UK, because of the NHS and people's sort of close engagement with the NHS, it's always been at the top priority. Now it just becomes more top. But what I hope is clear, and this is now where I move less to analysis and more my uh, view of it, is that we start to see that health is not just about access to healthcare, but about these fundamental public health facilities, but also seeing how global institutions and how international relations works also impacts health. And so I hope that it's a transition point where people will see you won't be able to earn money and, and enjoy it if you're actually dead or sick. And so you need to be able to do that. And lastly, sorry to monopolize the, the microphone in this bit, is that the 2008 bailout uh, continue to entrench uh, toxic parts of the economy in the belief that growth at any cost is what is needed. And so what we saw is that we did get growth at all costs, but that growth and that wealth has been enormously inequitable and has undermined basic public facilities in a variety of different countries. And we are about to set off on the same path in terms of basically saying whatever it takes for whoever makes money to make as much money as possible is what we need. So unless we intervene and actually say both the economy is not going to be secure, stable, but also will have negative impacts on health, and we're repeating the 2008 economic bailout. So there is a, a profound uh, choices that countries face right now, not only about health, but the kind of economic recovery and economy that people want to realize as a result of this pandemic. Thinking about what the pandemic is revealing, and one thing I found really striking is um, how it's revealing the importance of policies to protect workers' health. And I'm particularly thinking of paid sick leave, uh, which we don't have in the United States, um, that's you know required for, for all workers to be able to have access to. And I think this is really revealing that you you cannot have a functioning economy without workers who are healthy, and you can't protect workers' health without policies that prioritize um, giving workers the ability to stay home when they're sick, giving them access to needed care when possible or when needed. Um, that there's a lot of policy failures that I think the pandemic is revealing here. Uh, and in terms of the idea of having a roadmap for returning. Um, there has been one proposed, actually several proposed here in the United States, um, and they all have certain things in common um, in terms of what would be possible to enable that gradual process of reopening. Uh, there's one from Johns Hopkins uh, that proposes four criteria. Uh, one is that new cases need to have declined for at least 14 days. Uh, a second is that you need to at least have the ability to test all people who have COVID-19 symptoms, as well as those who are in close contact with them. Uh, the third is that you need 
a health system that's able to safely care for all patients. And that includes having enough personal protective equipment for health workers. And then fourth, lastly, there needs to be enough public health capacity to conduct contact tracing for all new cases. And so in thinking about how do we address this tension, in, especially in a pandemic context of, you know, when do we reopen? How do we still prioritize public health? I think there is a really nice roadmap there. Um, but my concern is that with the, the, the deep politicization of this issue, as previously mentioned, um, that if there's efforts to start reopening before these criteria are met, that will actually uh, ultimately have a far more devastating impact on the economy um, because it will result in increased harm to workers, to consumers, uh, and it will result ultimately in just further prolonging uh, the need for intensive social distancing. Yes, I think you've picked up the transatlantic or more to the point America versus the rest of the world dichotomy here quite well. There's long been a recognition, well, at least for 15 years anyway, and the economic historians would go back much further, uh, on the importance of health as a driver of economic growth in high-income countries, building on the work that was done in the uh, pre previously in low-income countries that uh, Sridhar has already alluded to. And that identified ways in which healthier people were more productive at work. They participated in the labour force more in that they worked more hours per week and they didn't retire so early. They also knew that they were going to have a healthy future. So therefore, they invested in their own education and development. And they also saved more for pensions and so on, which kept more money in the economy for investment. I think the difference in the United States was that to some extent, and I, I this may sound a bit pejorative, but there was a sense that when people become became ill, they were to some extent disposable because they could always be replaced by migrants. There was a much higher rate of migration from the rest of the world. So if somebody did become uh, ill at work, for example, in industrial injury or something like that, or if they just became uh, too unhealthy to work, there was always somebody else there. And uh, that may have influenced the, the psyche to some extent. I think the other thing we see in non uh, in countries outside the United States is the way that health services and health are seen as part of the national identity. So in the 2012 Olympics, I think many Americans uh, looked at the way in which the British National Health Service was represented in the opening ceremony in such a very visible way. And that was seen as part of what it is to be British in the same way that Canadians will often say we are not American because we have the flag that we put on the back of our rucksacks when we're trekking around Europe. But we also have our uh, the Canada Health Act, the national health system. And you see that in other European countries, too. It is part of being French or German or British or whatever. Whereas I think it would be very difficult to imagine, uh, had it been at the Los Angeles or the Atlantic Olympics, that there would be people in the opening ceremony who would be celebrating United Health or Kaiser Permanente. Do you think this is down to sort of different approaches towards individualism and collectivism? You know, Universal healthcare is is a, a collective act, um, pulling together and and doing the social distancing and and sacrificing one's own economic uh, output for for the good of the population is a a collective act as well. 
I think it. Uh, I think you're really getting to the crux of the matter between the United States and the rest of the high-income countries. This has been looked at in detail by Alberto Alessina from Harvard, who was, like many American uh, writers, have asked, why does the US not have universal health coverage? And he takes an approach which is identified with the philosopher John Rawls, who says that whenever we're looking at the world, when Sherdar is much more of an expert on this than I am, because he is a, a, a philosopher, uh, but uh, Rawls talks about how you should make a, your decisions about how you would like the world to be from behind a veil of ignorance, where you don't know where you will be on the other side of that veil. In Europe, in the post-war period, you had a generation who had come through the Second World War knowing that no matter how wealthy they were, how many estates they had or schlosses or chateaus or whatever, then the the decision almost at random of a, an army coming through to turn right or left could leave them penniless. And that, and they'd also been through the 1930s as well, and they had a sense that they wanted to make sure that in the future, no matter what tragedy would befall them, they would be in, they would be sure that they would at least be protected and that you would have a safety net there. One of the difficulties in the United States, and Alessina brings a lot of empirical data to support this argument, is that while in Europe you could go to bed rich and waking up poor, in America you knew you would never go to bed white and waking up black. I, I'm just thrilled that we've kind of pulled in philosophy into it. Um, but so, you know, what's interesting uh, as an offside is that John Rawls came back from the war in World War II and was profoundly moved by that. And his theory about what a good society is very much about thinking about the devastation of war, but also thinking about sort of conflicts of values in society, particularly for two different religions. And he wanted to figure out a way to think about how do we design a society where you have these incommensurable differences and what are the kinds of basic things that you have. So this idea of a veil of ignorance is basically imagine a society where you don't know where you're going to be in that society. And so how would you design it? And what are the things that you would do? And so the kind of things that I and other work on is sort of, you know, health, what kind of thing is this thing called health. And most Americans often think about health as being healthcare. And so he went off and thinking that healthcare is just a commodity good. And therefore, uh, you know, it's something that you buy with income. And what I and others have shown is that actually health is created through social interactions and through social uh, structures and what we would call the social determinants of disease and ill health. And so, and so coming to your point about universal health coverage as being a collective good, it's absolutely correct, is that for us to think about promoting and protecting health of people, it's not just about giving people commodities, but actually thinking about the relationships that we have with each other uh, and what are the kinds of burdens and benefits that we're going to organize so that everybody gets an opportunity to be healthy and have a healthy, long life. This was the aspiration and dream of universal health coverage but more recently particularly over the past five years and part of the um, sustainable development goals that uhc agenda has been hijacked by people who are focusing much more on commodities so what are the services and goods that would make up a package of universal health coverage what is the cost benefit ratio and how do we prioritize what budget according to what budget which country has and so this completely misses 
number one, the determinants of this pandemic. Why is this pandemic caused and how is this health risk created and how is it spreading in countries and what are the different ways? So healthcare would not have prevented this uh, except in that if you didn't have healthcare and you had chronic conditions, it made you more vulnerable uh, to this, but it didn't protect you. Uh, it doesn't protect anyone. And so it's your, your question is really important that uh, what we care about here is ensuring everybody has uh, access to health or opportunity to be healthy. It's not an individual consumption good that we're concerned about. We're concerned about how we relate to each other and what sort of social institutions that we build in order to promote everyone's opportunity. In the United States, unfortunately, despite producing the greatest political philosopher of the modern century, we still don't uh, have that kind of conception. And in fact, um, you know, the irony and the travesty of this man-made pandemic is that millions of people have lost healthcare in the United States as a result of losing their jobs. Uh, from this uh, shutdown. So just when they need healthcare the most in case they get sick, they no longer have it. I would just echo that. I mean, I think that is a hugely important failing that this pandemic has re re revealed in the United States, which is the, the sort of folly of tying health coverage to employment. Um, and that is one of the huge challenges now that we we are facing here in this country is that many people are indeed losing access to health insurance as they are losing uh, their jobs. I do think the timing here is really fascinating sort of politically in terms of where the United States is at, because it's obviously true that we don't have universal health coverage in the United States in the same way um, that it, it is available in most European countries. Um, but I do think public opinion has shifted in recent years and in particular um, after debates over whether to repeal or not components of the Affordable Care Act, which took place in 2017, um, ended up uh, resolving with ultimately the Affordable Care Act remaining in place, um, that there were sort of widespread protests and resistance to, effort to, and to efforts to reveal the, repeal the Affordable Care Act. I think we are seeing public opinion having already started to shift in the United States toward accepting or supporting um, some baseline amount of health coverage uh, access for all. And I am inevitably wondering whether this pandemic will further move public opinion in that direction. Uh, it's certainly the case there are public opinion polls now that um, show that in the United States that most Americans are more concerned about the country reopening too soon rather than too slowly. So for example, one poll from the Pew Research Center has found that you know, 66% of Americans, other polls in a similar ballpark, are, are prioritizing concerns over health um, and wanting and actually preferring to wait before reopening. So I think all of this sort of happening at the same time is, is very much revealing um, important tensions in this country and so in some cases distinctions between public opinion and perhaps individual Americans' prioritization of health as compared to where um, federal leadership and the leadership of some states uh, is moving. There's also another group of um, actors that we need to think about in this, and these are the people who provide health care. 
because of course the American health system we think of it as a private system but actually a very substantial amount of care is funded from the public sector be it from Medicare or from Medicaid um, Bureau of Indian Affairs veterans and so on and essentially what that does is take out all the expensive and high risk bits the poor the uh, older people people on dialysis and so on and the sector then has to depend on having enough people insured to get money coming in to work at the level at which it's become accustomed. We need to remember that in the 1920s, whenever Blue Cross and Blue Shield were created by the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, it was not out of a sense of altruism. It was out of a sense of needing to make sure that somebody would pay the bills. I think what we are now, uh, what is there is a risk of happening in the United States now is that particularly in rural areas and in smaller communities, we could see many of the health providers actually becoming insolvent because there's nobody who's there who can actually pay the bills. Uh, and that's, of course, accentuated further by the drop off in people going to health facilities because they're concerned about the risk of um, catching coronavirus there. So you may actually see, bizarrely, a coalition uh, of um, groups of the public and of some healthcare providers saying, actually, this is destabilizing the whole system and we need to do something. There will always be the big corporations who will benefit, find some way of benefiting anyway, but there are others that might not. And we are seeing that with uh, reports of um, clinical staff being asked to to take pay cuts or, or being um, made redundant. Just thinking about the healthcare workers uh, providing care, I just want to also point out the in these lifting of the lockdown policies, um, I, I want us to acknowledge the excruciating choice and position that certain workers will be of being told we have now lifted any health-based restrictions so you can go back to work but it's not you can go back to work it's you must go back to work and we you know and knowing that there is clearly not enough evidence that it's safe to go back to work So we've seen that key workers don't get a choice about whether they go back to work or not. So they've had to face higher risks. We've seen healthcare workers uh, admirably and with great dignity going to work and protecting the uh, in the patients and also spreading the message. But as other sectors are forced to open or voluntarily open, we have to also recognize that there's going to be so many people that no longer have the ability to say, oh, no, but the government says that we don't have to go back to work. But actually now they will have to put their lives at risk and the health of their some son, their families, because they have to go back to work. Um, And so I think that's really important. This lockdown policies is one of the most inegalitarian policies we've ever implemented. But it's also keep an eye on how that inequality and unfairness will be carried through in the lifting of the uh, of the lockdown policies. Maybe I could just add to that, if I may. There was an interesting article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago looking at mobility use of transport by people from different parts of uh, New York, uh, New York City. 
And uh, what it showed was that uh, the uh, that was a time when people who were in certain essential jobs uh, could still go to work. And in the poorest areas, they were something like six times more likely to travel to work than in the wealthiest areas where people could continue to work at, or could work at home. Yes, I mean, I think we absolutely see the the people who tend to fill the role of a quote-unquote essential worker or are in jobs where they're not able to commute to work because you can't drive a bus remotely. Uh, you can't um, put in an IV drip remotely. There are certain jobs that have to be done in person. And the people who are disproportionately represented in those jobs are already people that are more vulnerable in many ways. Um, they tend to be less affluent. They tend to have less financial resources. They tend to be non-white. Um, many of these jobs are disproportionately filled by women. Um, so I think this is a situation where groups that were already more vulnerable um, are likely to be the ones uh, who are most at risk from policies that allow, uh, obviously, certain kinds of white collar jobs to be done remotely, whereas other kinds of jobs, uh, the expectation will be to go back to work and potentially to go back to work in an environment where there isn't adequate uh, protective policies or protective uh, equipment in place. Um, so going back to that collective idea, I mean, it, someone said this this pandemic is is very leveling, but um, both economically and and in terms of of health, uh, that it doesn't seem to be the case um, at all. Uh, I wonder, you picked up on this a little bit, Kathleen, but do you think that there is a change that uh, you know in the UK we have seen? A huge amount of solidarity for for the NHS. Every Thursday evening, people go out and clap on the uh, clap and cheer on their front doorsteps um, for the NHS and care workers. Uh, do you see that? Do you feel like the that this might be a catalyst for change? Um, I I hope so. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on whether the the people who are in more privileged positions end up um, supporting policies that support those who are in less privileged positions. So obviously there's the language about we're all in this together and on one level that's true, but obviously we're not all in this together in the same way. Um, so I think the, the, the core question will become, uh, are those who are most vulnerable and uh, most at risk given the nature of their job, given uh, the nature of potentially not having a job at all, um, or whatever other else their situation is, if the experience of social distancing and of realizing how much our health is dependent on our neighbors, if that leads to those who are in a position to change policy and to, to influence those in a position of power, if they will actually move towards um, policies that are to as, as much of an extent as possible um, lead to greater equity. And I think the jury's still out on that. I don't know. Um, my hope is that that's what's going to happen, but I don't know for sure if, if it will. And Martin, um, just to, to bring it back to the UK, I mean, I said people are clapping and cheering for the NHS and for uh, carers, but we know that the care sector in the UK has been incredibly neglected sort of financially and just with attention. Um, so uh, I suppose we need to change there as well. Can, can I come back to that in just a second? I'd like to just follow on from Kathleen. 
One of the things that we need to look at as we exit from all of this is the distribution of power in society. David Lloyd George talked about the men in grey suits who did well out of the war, the First World War, and he was talking about the armaments manufacturers. We already know that there are some very uh, wealthy hedge fund managers who are making a fortune out of the current crisis and who are actually shorting some of the companies that have very generously moved their production to support the production of protective equipment and so on, uh, and are actively trying to undermine a number of our leading companies to make money out of that. Um, As we move forward, what we will see, I think, is that uh, the media narrative which has a major impact on the public narrative, will then seek to make sure that we don't have all of the things that we now recognise need to be dealt with. So in this country, for example, we have the Barclay Brothers with the Daily Telegraph, we have Rupert Murdoch with the, the Times newspapers and The Sun and so on. And I think what we're going to see them doing more and more and with Fox News in the United States, shaping that agenda. Now, it's interesting how some countries like Denmark have said that we will not provide tax-funded bailouts to companies that are registered in tax havens. The United Kingdom has not chosen to do that, and I would be amazed if the United States did that too. So I think at some point we need to, you know, there is a a, a story of... um, A classic story of a a hedge fund manager and a homeless person and an academic sitting around a table with a plate of 10 biscuits. And uh, the hedge fund manager takes nine of the biscuits and says to the academic, be careful of that homeless person, he's going to take your biscuit. Uh, You know, this way in which the narrative is is going to be shaped that I think we need to be very vigilant about and recognise that they're the essential workers who really made a contribution, who we're applauding and clapping, the carers and others are really the essential people and they're not the hedge fund managers of this world who are effectively uh, parasites on the rest of society. But I'm very worried that we will not deal with that. To go back to your point about social care, social care in the United Kingdom has been neglected for a very long time. We've been talking about a social care white paper government proposals uh, for years and there's been a complete failure to address that. I think we also have to see that in the context of the way in which we treat older people in the UK. So uh, we have the least generous pensions in Western Europe. Uh, We have, although often people talk about the baby boomer generation, we have very high levels of pensioner poverty. And uh, we have a society that really does not value them. Essentially, what we've done is we've created a social care sector that uh, stores people and, and often we find it's the same companies that are actually purchasing these they have care homes and building up a, a uh, uh, networks uh, where they're looking on them as financial vehicles, often doing complex financial transactions where they will sell the infrastructure to somebody else to ensure a flow of income. And uh, we've really lost, often lost sight of the, uh, of what we're trying to do. Now, of course, there are many small ones. There are many groups that really do provide provide as good care as they can do, but they're often terribly poorly funded, certainly in respect of uh, people who are dependent on local government who don't have their own assets. So I think you, we need to see it as part of this neglect of older people that's been going on for a very long time. 
And Srida, um, I mean, if we can then expand this out in, into to the rest of the world. I mean, you, you spoke at the beginning about some of the, the incredibly acute problems that are going to happen after this. Um, you know, that, that reckoning, is it coming elsewhere as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if I could just... Um, so I'm going to think slowly and talk slowly and see if I can get this out correctly. Um, <laughs> There is now a real question at an international level or what we call global level of the future of multilateralism. And to me, that is, you know, a, a reflection of interdependence and whether we're going to cooperate or whether we're going to go, people or countries are going to go on their own thinking that they can do better on their own, which is also happening in many different societies where all these different kinds of social inequalities is really different individuals and social groups thinking that they're better off uh, in their own group than together. Um, and this pandemic has really kind of brought to that for about how interdependent uh, we are, but nevertheless, the choice of what's going to go forward is not given. And it's something that we will have to proactively choose now, you said that the rhetoric in the beginning was about leveling, and it's very clear that it's not a leveler. And so what I would like to say to that is that all these you know, billions of biological bodies are perhaps uh, vulnerable to this particular virus. And we can think about that as somehow you know, allowing for us to see how it's leveled. But what we have seen is actually uh, that it's not... Uh, that biological vulnerability generically for a human being might be the same, but all the different social inequalities have uh, created vulnerabilities in different kinds of ways. Um, so the way that I use is that the term that I use is that capabilities, sort of the health capabilities are grossly unequal across society, across individuals and social groups. And these capabilities are determined by different historical, social, political and economic factors. Now, the interesting thing is that policymakers have recognized that if you start to differentiate between groups and say these groups are more vulnerable than those groups, you are going to lose public support for a very restrictive policy. So there's this, and, and what, why I say this is because in the US, for example, it's very clear that a lot of people think that universal health care or universal coverage is about including black people in a healthcare system and people don't see, don't want to uh, pay for those black people. And this isn't me making it up. It's sort of research that's clearly shown that implicitly that notion of expanding access to healthcare is seen as sort of bringing those people and why should I do it? That sort of caste thinking is profoundly true in many countries, in India, in various sub-Saharan Africa as well. So there's a real question here about, you know, what is the conceptual and rhetorical way that we uh, are able to implement a policy without losing the support of the public if you start to actually say, well, this particular group is more vulnerable and we should implement policies for those. So I think that's a real uh, big question here is, is that do policies have to work on the rhetoric of generalized risk and generalized benefit or can we as a society 
able to push and support policies that will try to alleviate the inequities that have been going on before, but actually particularly have been exacerbated by this pandemic. I think Sridhar's raised a really important point. Uh, some uh, Alasina and others have looked at uh, the example of Kenya and Tanzania, two countries that have many ethnic divisions in them. Tanzania is much poorer than Kenya, yet Tanzania consistently gets better health outcomes. And one of the reasons was that Julius Nyeri in the post-independence period created an identity that was Tanzanian, whereas Kenyatta uh, in, uh, Ken- in Kenya uh, encouraged or at least tolerated the uh, ethnic divisions, uh, knowing that there were particular groups that would always vote for a particular party. Uh, There is quite a lot of evidence from the United States on this. So, for example, people that are white people um, who are supportive of increasing welfare tend to be those people who live in areas where the poor around them are white, much more so than in white people who live where areas in areas where the poor around them are black. And another determinant of your attitude to welfare in the United States is your answer to the question, have you had a black person to dinner in your house in the last five years? Uh, so I think this idea of the collective, the individual, the group, Uh, is incredibly important in the debate about universal health care. And unfortunately, what we too often see are politicians that exploit divisions for their own purposes, either knowing or not knowing of the consequences that will arise. Uh, Well, I think it's, these are all such important points about the, the profound histories of racism and other forms of bigotry that are absolutely informing um, the response to COVID-19. And just going all the way back to the um, applause for healthcare workers, which we're certainly seeing here in the United States as well. Um, I think it's it's definitely important to emphasize that as lovely as that is, um, and as moving as the applause is, um, applause is not the same as personal protective equipment, and the applause is not the same as policies that actually protect the most vulnerable people. And in fact, in some ways, I I am concerned that there is a sort of narrative of celebrating the people um, making the greatest sacrifices and taking the greatest risks um, without actually being willing to support their safety through policy. And to me, that does send the message that these people are considered to be disposable and that they are expected to take certain amounts of risk um, for the sake of be it reopening the economy or or for the sake of the rest of the society. So I think these questions of who we are expecting to take these risks, who um, we are supporting or not supporting in our policies um, are all very much driven by these kinds of biases. And I think I guess I, I would just echo the points already made that um, the the pandemic is revealing those inequities and the question of whether we respond to those inequities by trying to address them or by papering them over and having those in the most privileged position try to simply retain their privilege and um, maintain the lowest risk possible for themselves while expecting other members of society to take on those risks. I think those are going to be some of the really profound ethical questions that we confront moving forward as we're thinking about what it means to both protect public health 
and have a functioning economy. Mm. This is really interesting because uh, as I do more of these conversations, um, it seems like what uh, what COVID's doing is um, exposing the cracks in, in our society, as we've talked about today, in the way we create our evidence to inform clinical decisions and the way we we set up our our healthcare services Um, so there's going to be a lot to to think about when this is all over Um, but we will do that uh, another time so um, thank you very much to Martin, Kathleen and Sridhar for taking part in this podcast again today thank you all thank you thank you thanks so much As I said, we'll be back with more of these in the future. But before that this week, we will have some more well-being, where my colleagues Kat and Abby are finding out about how the death of a colleague in the hospital is quite different from the death of a patient. We'll also have a talk evidence and another one of the BMJ's new Deep Breath In podcasts. So there's a lot coming your way and if you haven't done so, you might want to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'll be back on Friday with that talk evidence. So until then, thanks for listening and take care out there.